We're very privileged this morning to have Dr. John Payne preaching the Word of God for us in our pulpit. And John understands that this is a congregation that longs to be under the authority of the Word, and I encourage you to give the Word your complete and full attention. We're so glad also to have his wife Marla with us, and we hope that you'll get to know her. She's a South Carolinian and a very, very delightful lady indeed. John is a friend. He loves the Lord Jesus. He loves the church of Jesus Christ. And he is a pastor in South Carolina, in Charleston, of Christ Church Presbyterian, which he and others were used to plant with the Lord's blessing a decade or more ago. He's a faithful minister of the Word of God. He is on the editorial board of the Banner of Truth Trust, And he is here to be with us, especially because of his relationship with the Gospel Reformation Network, which for many, many years now, he has served as its uh, executive director. Uh, If you were privileged to be here in the CE hour, and if not, please listen to it, you will have heard his presentation on where we have been in the PCA and where we need to go in the PCA and our focus upon Christ and the Bible and our confession of faith and evangelism, the Reformed faith. And so I encourage you to hear that. He met last evening with the officers and their wives so that we would have a better understanding of what's going on in the PCA and how we may pray and how we may address it. And so, John, Again, we are thankful for your friendship. We are thankful that you're here with us. And um, we now long to hear the word of God. May the Holy Spirit bless. Beloved people of God, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. And as you're Uh, Turning there, I do want to bring uh, the uh, warmest of greetings from uh, your sister congregation in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Uh, I'm mindful that they are uh, worshiping the Lord uh, right now as well, Uh, and it's just delightful to be with you. I do want to thank you for the kind uh, invitation and hospitality we've received here. Um, uh, David is um, uh, a faithful friend and encourager, and we've been able to work on some projects together over the years, which has been a, a real delight uh, for, for me. Um, uh, also, I want to thank uh, the elders for uh, the, the invitation to be here today. Um, I have been preaching through the Book of Romans uh, for 66 weeks uh, in my own congregation. Uh, we are in the middle of Romans chapter 8, uh, and... Uh, I think I spent maybe five or six sermons in this one passage I'll be preaching on this morning. So do not fear. Um, I will not preach five sermons to you this morning. I'm going to preach one of those, uh, which really focuses in on uh, faith uh, and the importance of understanding the nature uh, and fruit of true and saving faith, which is something we all uh, need to be reminded of regularly, and some of us, of course, need uh, to learn Uh, So, again, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Verses 21 through 24. But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this glorious gospel of grace which we will consider in these next moments. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. We pray, Lord, that we would hear, know, and feel deeply that which is proclaimed to our hearts this morning. Lord, we pray that if there are any in this room or watching online who do not have a saving faith, who are still walking in darkness and unbelief, that even today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would call them to repentance and faith. And Lord, for all of us, would you remind us of the nature and fruit of true and saving faith, that we would be your faithful people, pleasing you, honoring you, and glorifying you in all that we do for your glory and for the witness of Christ in this world. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The splendid and the vile. The Splendid and the Vile. Some of you will be uh, familiar with this New York Times bestseller uh, that powerfully and quite descriptively chronicles the German air raids on London in 1940 to 1941. This was, of course, Winston Churchill's first year as prime minister. What a time uh, to become the prime minister. What a challenging year it was. The Nazi war machine had established total dominance in Western Europe. No one could stop Hitler. The future of democracy and freedom was grim. Not a week passed where the British population weren't warned about the possibility of an imminent German invasion. They lived with this prospect every single day. Even worse, they lived almost nightly with the deadly and destructive German air raids. These air raids were relentless and sometimes taking place for weeks on end. It's hard to imagine being in such a setting for this amount of time. In fact, the bombings became so frequent that many, in a strange way, learned to live with them, not without a measure of fear, of course. You know, the, the uh, keep calm and carry on uh, slogan that you see, that came out during that time keep calm and that British resolve to just keep going. The people continued to live their lives, even going to work after bombs killed hundreds of people and destroyed large sections of the city uh, the night before. Also during these perilous days of the war, the nightclubs and debutante balls continued for the young people. It's hard to imagine. One spring night, Mary Churchill, Winston's daughter, the youngest daughter of the prime minister, went out with her friends for dinner and dancing. Not long after they had arrived to the party, they could hear faint sounds of bombs exploding in the distance. Described later by Mary in her diary as, quote, 
odd bumps and thuds above our chatter and the music. But things worsened. That night would be, uh, turn out to be one of the deadliest air raids of the war. That evening, the German bombers dropped no less than 130,000 incendiaries on London. 130 tons of high explosives. Bombs hit Buckingham Palace, police stations, hotels, hospitals, residences, and train stations. A 110-pounder also fell through the roof and onto the dance floor of the Café de Paris, a well-known downtown jazz club that attracted cultural elites. The bomb exploded on the dance floor at 9.50 p.m., immediately killing 34 and gravely injuring another 80. Mary Churchill and her friends, who were not far from the incident, found out about it not long after it happened. Did they head home? No. They decided to, as she recorded in her journal, quote, keep on dancing, laughing, and joking until 6.30 in the morning. Quote, recalling it now, she wrote years later, I'm a little shocked that we headed off to find somewhere else to twirl whatever was left of the night away. Now, aside from the reality that many Londoners became strangely accustomed to the deadly air raids, these were, as I mentioned earlier, some of the darkest days of the war. Hitler and his generals were confident that they would eventually conquer Britain and Russia and seize control of a large part of the civilized world. A German invasion was imminent. Everything seemed to be going wrong for Britain and their allies. Would the evil of Nazism have the last word? A growing darkness seemed to be covering the world. Well, dear ones, this brief snapshot of world history, a period of darkness, death, and despair, is not unlike the spiritual portrait that Paul paints in the first two and a half chapters of his epistle to the Romans, if you're familiar with it. Chapters 1 and verse 18 through chapters 3 and verse 20 outline the universal depravity of mankind and paint a very dark picture of the world. Things are worse than most people think they are. And some continue, quote, laughing, dancing, and twirling the night away without a true understanding of the profound spiritual darkness of the world and in our own hearts. Satan has wreaked havoc everywhere. All of mankind is born naturally depraved. The apostle, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not candy coat or water down or sanitize or euphemize the state of mankind or God's holy response to it. Indeed, he makes clear that God does not respond to humanity's sin with a shrug of the shoulders. No, he explains the storm clouds of God's wrath are not just forming, but they're already here. If you have your Bibles, look with me at chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul writes there that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. It's not only that God's righteousness is being revealed against all of this ungodliness, it's that the people that are being ungodly, because they're made in the image of God and they know that these things are wrong, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth by binging on Netflix. 
They suppress the truth through binging on social, social media. They suppress the truth by putting out of their minds the reality of the guilt that they possess before a holy God. And God's holy wrath isn't just coming, it's already here. Why? Well, because of these great exchanges that take place, which Paul outlines in Romans 1, beginning in verse 22. Look there with me. Claiming to be wise, they, that is humanity, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is literally what mankind has done. If you've done any traveling at all into Asia, Africa, even parts of, of, uh, of, of the, the Western world, people will, will worship creeping things and strange statues and declare them to be gods, exchanging the glory of the true God for these things. Look at verse 25. Another exchange takes place. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Another exchange, the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 28 and following, there's another exchange that takes place, which often takes place when you have a wholesale abandonment of God in a culture. You have the exchanging of natural sexual relations and marriage. It says there in verse 28, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that not describe our culture. Of course, just prior to this, he talks about that exchanging of natural relations between men and women for unnatural. Dear ones, this not only describes humanity in first century Rome, but all of humanity since the fall of mankind into sin. It perfectly describes mankind in our own day, does it not? And Paul makes it clear to his fellow countrymen, the Jews, that this is not just a Gentile problem. This is not just a, a them problem. They too are without excuse in their sin and unbelief before God. And he writes in chapter 2 and verse 8 that for Jew, those Jews who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is Paul's word to the to the early church. It's Paul's word to, to, to us. All people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin and under God's wrath and curse in, their, in our natural selves. We fall short of God's glory. No one is righteous, Paul teaches us. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have broken God's law. And in chapter 3, verse 19, the whole world is accountable to God. Our mouths are closed. No more excuses. No more justifications. God is holy. He is just. He is righteous. We are sinful. There is this broken relationship with God. We no longer have that perfect fellowship and communion with God as we once did in the garden paradise before the fall. 
So what hope is there for us? Someone might ask. How can we sinners be rescued from Satan's bondage and from the curse of sin and from the reality of sin in our lives? If God is holy and we are sinners justly deserving his eternal wrath and punishment in hell, what hope is there for us? What, what hope is there for you and for me? Well, Paul announces this sure and certain hope in what many have described as the greatest paragraph ever written. The greatest paragraph ever written. You may have thought, oh, that essay I wrote back in English class in ninth grade, it was pretty good. Nothing compares to the paragraph that we are about to see and consider in Romans 3. But now, Romans 3.21. Though all of these things are true about humanity, that we are held accountable to this holy God, though God's righteousness has been revealed against unrighteousness, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The wrath of God has been revealed, we have seen in Romans 1, but also there is a righteousness that's been revealed, not a righteousness to crush us and to judge us, which is what Luther thought it, it meant prior to having a true understanding of it, but a righteousness that comes from God in Christ and received by faith and is a gift to save us, to save you, dear one. You cannot and I cannot generate a righteousness that is acceptable to God, that meets his standard, but Christ has. He has met the standard of God's law through his perfect life of righteousness, and he gives that righteousness to you in the gospel, and we receive it by faith. All is not lost, amen? All is not lost. Satan has not won. How do we know this? Because God has manifested or revealed a saving righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that perfectly fulfills the requirements of God's law. A righteousness that gives us a right standing with God. A righteousness that when received by faith in Christ justifies us before God's throne and restores us to fellowship with him and guarantees us everlasting life. And it's because you are in union with Christ by grace through faith that you can never be separated from him. And God is as likely to condemn Christ as he is to condemn you who are in Christ. And we know that's impossible. What a joy. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The image of God that was stamped upon us in original righteousness, an image that was designed to reflect God's glory and goodness, was shattered at the fall. But Christ, the second Adam, and God's glory, the perfect image of God's glory and goodness, He came to us and He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He perfectly reflected the glory and goodness of God in our stead and then gave himself as a perfect righteous substitute on Calvary. This is the message of Romans. This is the message of the entire Bible. 
there on Calvary, our Lord, our righteous substitute, was crowned with your wretched sins and mine. He was weighed down by our guilt and shame. He was wounded for our transgressions, as we read earlier from Isaiah 53. On the cross, Jesus finished. He didn't begin. He finished the work of redemption that his Father had given him to do before the the foundation of the world. Father, he says, I have come for those whom you have given me. I've come to complete the work that you have given to me. There on Golgotha's hill, the great exchange took place. Our sin placed upon him. His righteousness given to us. God's wrath poured out upon him as he pays the debt of our sin so that God would be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, it surely was good news on May 8, 1945, when victory was declared over, uh, over uh, Europe by the Allied forces. This, the, the people were celebrating in the streets uh, in America and Great Britain and other, elsewhere. But that good news... If you think about that moment of news, of, of the defeat of, uh, of the Nazis, what a, what a moment it must have been. But it, it does not compare. It pales in comparison to the good news that Satan and sin and hell and death have been forever vanquished in Christ Jesus. Forever. For all who have their faith in Him. Now, that last part is vital. Because salvation is by grace alone, but it's also by faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no salvation apart from true and saving faith. It's important that we understand this point this morning. It's key to understanding Romans. It's key to understanding the Christian life, understanding faith. And that, please, please get this, that faith is a condition of salvation. Faith is a condition of salvation. And that's the first point I want to make this morning, uh, the condition of saving faith. Uh, the Greek word uh, pistis or, or faith occurs about 140 times in the New Testament and no less than 40 times in the book of Romans. It's mostly used to refer to trust or confidence in God or, or specifically trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And as you've already heard from this pulpit uh, countless times, it's not by one's own merits or good works that we are justified before God. It's not by our moral strivings. It's by grace through faith. That is, faith in Christ In His blood and righteousness, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. This is the condition of salvation. But you might be wondering, does that then nullify grace? If faith is a condition and we must exercise faith in Christ, doesn't it follow that faith is a good work that we must perform in order to be saved? Well, it's a question that's been asked throughout the centuries. Well, the answer to this question is an emphatic no. 
an emphatic no, a thousand times no. Faith is a condition, but it's not in itself a good work that we perform to merit God's grace. Why? Because it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. But before we unpack this point, I first want to explore what the gift of faith is. What is faith? What is faith? It's not like you can show, show someone your faith, like pulling it out of your pocket. Here's my faith. Look at it. Touch it. What is faith? You ever thought about this question? What is saving faith? What's the nature of saving faith? What is, what's it constituted of? Well, knowing this answer will help you to understand if you possess faith or not. Paul, at times, will challenge his readers to consider whether or not they have true and saving faith. I think there are many who do think they have it that actually do not. These are important questions. And so we come to the second point, the nature of saving faith. Faith in a word is clinging to Christ for salvation. Faith in a word is clinging to Christ for salvation. Question 86 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains that faith in Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. To exercise true faith, therefore, is to receive and to rest upon or cling to Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. We are not saved by faith in ourselves as Oprah Winfrey, the high priestess of modern secularism, a New Age philosophy would teach us. Moreover, we cannot save ourselves through faith in ourselves. We are fallen sinners. We are not saved by having faith in faith. You hear it all the time from politicians who are trying to sound spiritual and to get the evangelical vote. Oh, yes, my faith got me through. What does that even mean? Faith in what? Faith in yourself? Faith in faith? Well, I don't think they even have an answer when you ask, but, but this is the kind of thing that people say and think. We are not saved by having faith in faith, as if faith without an object makes us acceptable to God. We are not saved by faith in humanity, or faith in science, or faith in the American dream, or faith in religion, or faith in pastors, or faith in some Christless religion. Saving faith is that which receives and rests upon Christ alone for salvation. And that faith, if it be true, is traditionally understood to be constituted of at least three things. Here they are uh, in their uh, Latin uh, as well as English. True and saving faith is constituted of notitia, which is knowledge, assensus, which is assent or belief, and fiducia, which is trust or confidence. So first of all, faith is constituted of knowledge. There must be knowledge if true faith is there. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the gospel. You can't have faith in something or someone that you have no knowledge of. I hope that's not something new for you this morning that you've learned. That's why Paul asks in Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? For there to be true faith, there must be knowledge of Christ and the gospel. But that's not all faith is constituted of, just a knowledge. There is also a sensus or belief that that knowledge of the gospel is true. You can't have true faith if you don't believe the truth is really true. Faith is knowledge of and belief in the truth of the gospel. Now, many will think that those two uh, things alone make up saving faith. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I have faith. I, I know the gospel and I believe it to be true. But Satan has that. Satan knows the gospel and he believes it's true. That does not make Satan a Christian and it makes none of us Christians either. Satan possesses those two aspects of faith. He has knowledge of the gospel. He knows it's true. But what he doesn't have is the third aspect of saving faith, which is trust or confidence. This is the aspect of true faith that receives Christ clings to Christ, and rests upon Him alone for salvation. Without this receiving and resting and clinging to Christ alone, faith is merely intellectual assent, and thus not saving faith at all. Dear ones, please hear this. And I want to I speak directly to the covenant children in this room as well. We all must hear this. True faith holds fast to Jesus, loves Jesus, depends on Jesus' blood and righteousness. True faith is confident in Jesus and what He's done. True faith trusts in Jesus, and not just in a kind of general way, but in a personal way. Covenant children, you must own your faith. You you cannot ride on the coattails of your parents' faith, thinking, well, I'm okay because my parents have true faith. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. You must yourself, by God's grace, receive and rest upon Christ alone for your salvation, thus exercising true and saving faith, a gift from God. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21 and answer 21 says. True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of of Christ's merits, end quote. Faith, therefore, is not a work done by us or a thing inherent in us. We are not born with a kind of dormant faith that we just need to exercise and sort of self-actualize and realize. Oh, no. We are not born with faith. It's, faith is also not mere assent to the facts of the gospel. Faith is a gift of God given to us, created by the Holy Spirit in us, that we would by grace receive and rest upon Christ alone and receive all of His benefits. 
And so we can put it this way. You, as a dead, unbelieving sinner, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That gospel is preached to you by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit brings you into union with Christ. And at that very moment of being brought into union with Christ, you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. You are born again. And at that very moment that you are born again, you receive a gift called faith. And with that faith, you receive all the benefits that are yours in Christ. Justification, adoption, sanctification, and the surety of your glorification. So sure that Romans speaks of it as if it's already happened, that you are glorified. This leads us to the third heading, the gift of saving faith. Faith, again, is a condition of our salvation. We must have saving faith in order to be saved. It's by faith that we cling to Christ. But here's the good news. Faith, as I mentioned before, is a free gift of God. Faith is required in salvation, but faith is given to us at the moment we are brought into union with Christ. What good news that is. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians declares in a familiar passage in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. That faith is not of your own doing. No, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It would make sense that if we ourselves had a dormant faith, which we sort of uh, actualized and realized and, and made real, and, and we did that, and we came to Christ, and, and then we were born again, we'd have something to boast about. Look what I did that uh, Joe Schmo didn't do over here. But we can't boast. Again, if faith preceded regeneration, then we would have something to boast about. But as it is, regeneration logically precedes faith. Because faith is created in us by the Holy Spirit at the moment of our regeneration. So please get this. We don't exercise faith in order to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We exercise faith because we already are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Those who are dead spiritually cannot exercise true faith. Those who are dead don't move, they don't exercise faith, they don't eat, they don't do anything. They just lay there. But in Christ, being made alive in Him, they are given the gift of faith and then that faith begins to be exercised with the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Mike Horton helpfully explains it this way, quote, in the act of justification, we must insist faith merely receives, embraces, and clings to Christ. It does not do anything but receives everything, end quote. Well, how does this relate to our union with Christ? This is the fourth point this morning. Union with Christ, righteousness, and the instrumentality of saving faith. Union with Christ, instrumentality, and uh, union with Christ, righteousness, and the instrumentality of saving faith. And so it's, it's very important as we think about faith and the gift of faith and salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone that we consider it in terms of our union with Christ, our union with Christ. Uh, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 7. 
Paul is describing to his Ephesian um, uh, audience that he's writing to at the church of Ephesus who they were. He's, he's discipling them. He's teaching them uh, who they used to be and who they are now. And it's all with a view to helping them understand their union with Christ. Listen to what, what he says about who they used to be. And this is similar to, to, to Paul's opening chapters in Romans, isn't it? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's, it's the, uh, an echoing of the universal depravity of man that we see uh, ushered forth in the opening chapters of Romans. This is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you are by nature children of wrath. You are under the wrath of God. This is who you were. And then Paul mentions those two beautiful words, which he mentions at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 20 uh, as well, the two words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in case you forgot about that from three verses earlier, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't didn't come exercising our faith so that we could be born again. Regeneration precedes faith because we cannot exercise true and saving faith unless we are regenerated. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with those familiar verses we just read that you are saved by grace through faith. And faith is a gift of God lest any man should boast. What does this all mean? It means that united to Christ, our living head, we receive the saving benefits of our redemption. And all of it we receive through faith. It's through the instrumentality of faith that we exercise by the enablement of the indwelling Holy Spirit to cling to Christ And to know that in Christ we are indeed justified. That in Christ we are indeed adopted into his family. We cry out, Abba, Father. Not because we deserve it or because we were born into some royalty. But because we are united to Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And even now united to him. We are mystically uh, seated with him in the heavenly places Because we are united to him. And what that's telling you, dear believer, is that whatever you're going through, whatever challenges and temptations you are going through, you are in 
Christ. Nothing can separate you from his love. And he's as likely to be cast out of heaven as you are. Because he, and he never will be. Because you are in him. He is the son of God. Who was vindicated by his father at the resurrection. As the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell. It's through faith that we receive Christ and rest in Him and receive all of His benefits. It's through faith constituted of the knowledge of the gospel, belief that the gospel is true, and confidence and trust in the gospel, in Christ, or more specifically in the Christ of the gospel, clinging to Him alone for salvation by grace through faith. This is faith. This is what we possess as Christian believers. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, Pastor, I don't think I have that. I don't think I have that. I think I I may have some some knowledge of the gospel that I've gained throughout the years. And and, and maybe even I believe some of the parts of the gospel. And at times I I have some kind of of, of fading and fleeting comfort from knowing these things are true. But but never have I had a a confidence and a trust and a a receiving and resting upon with, with, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith. I don't believe I've really had that. So what, what's the answer for me? Well, the answer is believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from your suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness. Turn from the sinful patterns that have developed in your life. Turn from your idolatry to serve the living and the true God. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who perfectly obeyed God's law on your behalf. Who fulfilled the standard of God's righteousness for you. And then as a perfect law keeper laid his life down on Calvary. Bearing every single one of your sins. And paying for those sins. The debt is paid. God's wrath was unleashed upon his son. He crushed him because of his love for you and his commitment to save a people for his own glory. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You shall be forgiven. You shall receive mercy. You may ask, well, Pastor, what about me? I feel like my faith is so small. I feel like I do have true and saving faith, but it, it feels like it's a flicker. I feel like a bruised reed that's about to break. Well, here's the good news. God will not allow you to be snuffed out. He will not allow the bruised reed to be broken. He will sustain you. He will preserve you. Continue to look to him by grace through faith. Take your eyes off of the challenging circumstances of your life and place them on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of your, what? Faith. And who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Don't allow the distractions and worries and temptations and anxieties of this world to cause you to be overwhelmed and to forget about Christ who lives and reigns on high and who represents you and who's praying for you and who's given his Holy Spirit to you and he's given to you the church. Take advantage of all of these wonderful blessings and benefits he's given you, all that you need for life and godliness. Don't despair. 
don't be discouraged. Keep going. Endure. Don't give in to the lies of the evil one. Continue onward. God will not snuff you out. He will protect you. Rejoice in that. And here's good news this morning. The weakest faith next to the strongest faith are both true faith, and they both cling to the same Savior. We are not saved by how strong our faith is. We are saved by the Savior in whom our faith is. What joy, what comfort that brings to us. Don't be discouraged, dear believer. And for those who think that they have strong and robust faith, that nothing can conquer them, I will pray for you. Because there's a real problem with that position as well. Not that there aren't seasons where we feel close to the Lord and our personal disciplines are going well and we're regular in our church attendance. Sure, there are those times in our lives and we rejoice in that. But beware lest you fall to think that somehow you have risen above the ordinary challenges of life. Uh, Take heed. Uh, Be on the alert Put on the armor of God. Uh, These are exhortations that all Christians receive that we would not take the Christian life lightly and all the challenges that will come in the future. Someone might be asking, if faith, excuse me, if salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, then where do good works come in? After all, James says, faith without works is what? Is dead. Well, it's important to understand it in this way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here's the thing. As Luther once said, faith is never alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by works. The good works are the evidence or fruit of true saving faith. Works are not the essence of saving faith, but they are the certain fruit of saving faith. Again, faith without works is dead. Again, Mike Horton explains it helpfully. Quote, the faith that justifies is immediately active in love, honoring God, and serving neighbor. But this act of love is faith's fruit, not the act of justifying faith itself. End quote. So, beloved, as we close, the concept of faith is vital to our understanding of the gospel. We must get this. We must teach this to our children. We must point them to the wonderful formulations in our confessional standards and and, and, and the wider confessional uh, documents that we have that help us to understand this important doctrine of saving faith. Again and again, Paul shows us that the righteousness revealed by God for our salvation is a righteousness by grace, it's righteousness received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is, again, for all who believe. All who believe. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, cursed are are those who are seeking salvation through the law and not obeying the law perfectly. 
Then Paul writes, No, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Pointing to Habakkuk 2. To the Philippians, Paul shares in chapter 3 that all things are rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. That all things are rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ, quote, and being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In whom? In Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Dear ones, it is true that the world is full of darkness. And in some ways in our own culture, we see a growing darkness, a growing throwing off of of, uh, Christian morality. It used to be uh, 30, 40 years ago, you could tap someone on the shoulder and ask them questions like, what is marriage? Or what is a man? Or what is a woman? And you'd get a pretty straightforward answer from those who are committed to church life and those who aren't. But nowadays, there's massive chaos and confusion and darkness is growing. Humanity has rebelled against a holy and just God from the days of the fall. And His wrath and His curse are being revealed in part today and one day it will be unleashed in full. It's coming. But he has not left us without hope. Praise God. He sent his son to this dark and sinful and broken world. He sent his son who is the light of the world to save us from what our sins deserve by giving himself for us. It's through faith that we receive him. Rest upon him and cling to him and live for him. We live by faith and the promises of God and not by sight. And if you are clinging to him this morning, it's all of grace. And you can be sure that he will never let you go. Dear ones, may this good news fill your soul, fuel your gratitude and motivate your obedience and mission to be his faithful witnesses in this world. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this brief time in your word this morning. Oh, how rich is the book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel promises that are found there. And we do pray, O oh God, that we would indeed, by your grace, exercise saving faith in your Son. We pray that we would rest in him, that we would receive him, that uh, we would cling to him, and that we would live for his glory through faith, enabled by your Spirit and all for your glory. Help us be your faithful witnesses in this dark world. Help us to love one another in the church and to love our lost friends and neighbors, seeking to give them the bread of life that we have received. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.